0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. People's eyes were on the heavens last night, and not just for fireworks. Around 10-hour time, NASA's Juno spacecraft entered Jupiter's orbit. Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system. It's made up largely of gas, and its surface is covered in thick, multicolored clouds. Kenny Starnes manages the Juno program at Lockheed Martin's campus in Littleton. Also with us, astronomer Doug Duncan, director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. Gentlemen, welcome to the program.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Under good circumstances, wouldn't you say, Kenny?
1: Absolutely.
0: You've been working on Juno for more than a decade, in fact. What were you thinking last night?
1: Well, it's hard not to be very confident because we've tested so many things. We've been ready for this event for more than five years. We actually tested it before we launched the spacecraft in 2011. So we were really ready for it. But there's those things that you once you've loaded the automated sequence on board, you don't know uh, what you forgot. And Mm. uh, so we... We do have a little bit of nervousness, but uh, as it turns out, we didn't need to be. We didn't forget anything.
0: You didn't forget anything. Uh, Well, Juno entered Jupiter's orbit. At its closest, it'll be around 3,000 miles above Jupiter's clouds. Can we get elementary here? Um, Why isn't the spacecraft actually landing on Jupiter, Doug?
2: Nothing to land on Uh (laughs) because Jupiter has no solid surface, uh, at least not, except way, way, way down inside. It's gaseous. um, And it's 10 times the diameter of the Earth. So it's got a very, very thick atmosphere and a very colorful atmosphere with cloud belts and stripes and whirls and a great red spot which is like a hurricane, except it's lasted since 1600. That's quite a hurricane. This
0: persistent storm on Jupiter. Yeah. Is that something you have to account for if you're going into its orbit, or is that happening closer to the planet? From
1: our proximity, no. We don't need to worry about it. But we are interested from a scientific standpoint. We want to be able to see... What that red spot's all about? Yeah, why
0: and, is there general interest in Jupiter? We, we we've well, been before, yeah. we should say. So I mean,
2: Jupiter uh, is is the largest planet in the solar system. You know, why do we care? Why does Google have the doodle today? Everybody there at Google applauding, are <laughs> reaching Jupiter? Um, planets are really interesting. As regular listeners know, I teach hundreds of non-science majors up at CU, and when we talk about planets, they are fascinated. They want to know, where did the Earth, where did the solar system come from? They want to know, are there planets out there around other stars? And to understand the formation even of our own planets, you got to understand Jupiter too. It's a family of planets, right? And it all came from the same cloud of gas and dust out there in space, and yet, look at the difference between Earth and Jupiter. We ended up rocky you know a place with water uh, Jupiter is is gaseous it's uh, it's way way more massive than the earth So how did that happen? Um, studying more than one planet is essential for figuring out what were the physical processes that led to the earth looking like the Earth and Jupiter, looking like Jupiter does Why there
0: was this divergence? What fascinates you about Jupiter, Kenny?
1: Well, I think that understanding uh, that massive planet does give us big insight as to how the solar system formed. And I think another thing that really interests me about solar systems in general is that we're seeing through uh, Kepler and Spitzer and some of the other spacecraft that there are exoplanets, or planets around other stars out there. So, That stirs up more interest on how those solar systems are formed and why they're so different.
2: And some of them are really quite challenging. You know, Mm. in our solar system, there's a nice regular pattern. The inner four planets are rocky like the Earth. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. Out by Jupiter, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, you have big gaseous planets. So we kind of thought we understood that. Because the rocky planets and the Earth are close enough to the sun that it was hot enough in the early times that only things like rocks and metals could condense.
0: Could form, right.
2: So uh, everything was real nice until we started finding planets around other stars and we found planets like Jupiter as close to those stars as the Earth. Or even as close as Mercury.
0: Whereas they should be solid, uh, based on the yeah, old theory. There's, wow.
2: there's no obvious way that the big gaseous planets could have formed, so maybe they move around.
0: Ah, and and thus their form changes as a function of their distance, I suppose, to the star. Yeah, and you, so uh, let's get a description of this um, spacecraft. How big is it? What is it going to do? What is it capable of,
1: Kenny? Well, fully loaded at launch, it was thirty-six hundred kilograms, <clears throat> about eight thousand pounds or so. Okay, and um, it has uh, three massive solar arrays. Uh, that's necessarily necessary because uh, of our great solar distance, over five AU at if,
2: Jupiter. If you want to try and imagine it, those solar arrays would cover a, a basketball court almost, in and, like. and
0: that's its power source. In other words, that's its only power source. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what will it send back? Um, And and to the the layman like me, what will we be able to see or perceive because
1: of its orbit? We're going to be very close to the planet, and we're going to be able to take measurements of plasma waves and uh, energetic particles that are there. We're going to take measurements of the gravity uh, specific gravity anomalies, in other words is is Jupiter lumpy at all? and you know huh. from here we can say well there 's probably this much gravity overall, but how is that gravity distributed amongst the the big planets
2: and that 'll give you a clue if there 's something rocky down in the core, if it 's liquid throughout gravity measurements are surprisingly revealing of what 's inside that you can 't see.
0: Will it send back pictures or information that can be made into pictures?
1: Yes, there's, uh, there is a camera. It's called JunoCam, and it's an outreach. Uh, so it's, it's, when I say outreach, that means that it wasn't really put on there for certain scientific reasons. It's for the public. Ah. It's the public's camera. And so every image that's being taken by JunoCam will be released. Uh, as soon as it 's available, and, uh, I, I even understand there's
2: a way to suggest if you 're yeah. sh- an amateur astronomer <laughs> and have favorite parts of Jupiter you 'd like <laughs> pictures taken of you can you can uh, enter your own suggestions
0: as to what it captures yeah we're talking about the Juno program to Jupiter. It entered orbit last night, much to Kenny Starn's delight. He manages the Juno program at Lockheed Martin in Littleton. We're also joined by Doug Duncan, astronomer and director of the Fisk Planetarium. My, it was an interesting
1: route, Kenny, for Juno to get to Jupiter. Describe that for us. Well, yeah. Uh, we launched in uh, 2011, August of 2011, and our trip took us out of beyond Mars orbit on our initial launch. Uh, and then we needed to target Earth uh, with two big maneuvers that we did out there. So we got to practice this whole thing of using the main engine like we will, like we did yesterday uh, so that it wouldn't be new, all new, when we got to Jupiter. I see.
0: It was a practice run along the way.
1: Well, we used it for practice. It was actually to target Earth to get a catapult slingshot gravity assist around the Earth. Ah. You, you know, know f-
2: flying through the solar system, it's a little bit like miniature golf, um, every place there's a planet puts a dimple because of the pull of gravity. And so you shoot, uh, you launch your spacecraft a- originally more or less going straight. But you know that if you pass by a planet, it will curve and slingshot it and speed it up. And so, so, and so you
0: so, use that to your advantage almost like you were playing pool to some extent. Y- yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> you don't have
2: to carry as much fuel because you're gaining some energy from the planets you pass.
0: I remember this being uh, somewhat Hollywoodly described in Interstellar, I think it was. No, the Martian. The Martian. The Martian yes, had that the Martian scene. did that, yeah. Uh, and it, the speeds are remarkable.
1: Yes. Uh, and then we had to get a lot of speed in order to, while in the heliocentric orbit, orbit about the sun, we were able to get all the way out to Jupiter's orbit. So once we went by the Earth in 2013— it took three more years to find our way all the way out to where Jupiter hangs out uh, and then leading to last night's activities.
2: Very roughly, the speed was 10 times the speed of the space shuttle. Wow.
0: Yeah. And kids, this is why you study math, because when you do it right, this is the result.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hey. One of our engineers mentioned that we were actually relativistic. Uh, we were 0. 0.0002 warp.
2: <laughs> of the speed of light, of That's the right. speed of light. Okay, <laughs> yeah,
0: fast for sure. Mm-hmm. It'll be there for twenty months in orbit, and then what happens to your what happens to your baby?
1: Kenny? Well, uh, we will. Our, our intention is to uh, deorbit it, so we can actually uh, do some more maneuvers uh, in a certain part of the orbit, such that when it gets close to the planet, it goes too close and dives in.
0: But you'll be able to extract something of it before it, what, cr- crashes or is burned up? Yeah, I guess it it's kind of
1: disintegrates up. in the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very thick. The pressures are very high. Uh, the spacecraft wouldn't be able to survive any of that. We
2: said before that each orbit gets within about 3,000 miles or something. But remember, Jupiter is 80,000 miles across. So getting within 3,000 miles of Jupiter is really getting close. Right.
0: That's a big deal. Every orbit. Comparatively. Do you have to give some thought to what that disintegration looks
1: like? In other words, you obviously plan for its life. Do you plan for its death? Not beyond putting it in the atmosphere. Okay. We, yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen to it necessarily, other than we won't hear from it again.
2: The, the planet itself is probably not as much to worry about as if you were going to one of the moons of Jupiter, which is in the future, or going to Mars. Because there, with a solid surface, you really have to worry about contamination. If we're interested in life in the solar system, which we are, you don't want to accidentally contaminate it with Earth Life and then discover life, you know, on a moon of Jupiter like Europa or on Mars and have it turn out to be from us. So, is there
0: a a department at NASA that thinks about this? There is actually
2: a person called the Planetary Protection Officer. He wears a big PP and a cape. (laughs) No, he, uh, but seriously, his job is (laughs) to worry about Earth contaminating. Other bodies in the solar system with our life and in the future when we have a Mars sample return mission contaminating the Earth with possible life from Mars. So if somebody really thinks about this, the spacecraft gets sterilized um, and if a spacecraft, you know, ends up in burning up in Jupiter then you don't have to worry about that. Got it.
0: But other missions, this is a real concern. The the cross-contamination in some ways. I guess let's wrap up with a comparison between this and the last mission to Jupiter. That was more than 10 years ago, wasn't it, Kenny?
1: Yes, I think it actually deorbited in 2003. Okay. Is that Galileo? Galileo, yeah. yeah.
0: And what, what's the
2: difference here? Oh, the technology is so much better now.
1: Yeah, the technology, the shielding that we used, uh, the uh, the vault, the titanium vault that we used to shield the electronics from um, uh, the the harmful radiation. Galileo was a, a equatorial orbiter in a very large orbit, and it's other than the probe that it released into the atmosphere at Jupiter. Uh, its goal was to mainly uh, check out those uh, Galilean satellites and the other moons yeah. of Jupiter, and the by going as over
2: opposed,
0: the, as opposed to the planet itself, yeah. right.
2: going over the poles. Now we get really close to these incredible aurora, northern lights, that Jupiter has. Uh, people should look at the pictures. They should they should visit our our uh, website of Colorado Matters. There's a link to the Fisk Planetarium, which is also showing these incredible pictures from Hubble uh, of the aurora. On Jupiter, uh, by the way, Jupiter, you can see tonight oh. every night, this bright thing out there in the sky, this evening star is Jupiter, and you can look out there and imagine how far away the
0: spacecraft is. I love it, Kenny, will you be doing that
2: uh, well i 've already checked it out a few yeah. times, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have the the shows at Fisk Planetarium are going to talk about the evening star, Jupiter, and the mission at the
0: end of this month. You heard there astronomer Doug Duncan of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder and Kenny Starnes, manager of the Juno program at Lockheed Martin, the Littleton campus. Coming up, if you're looking for an unusual destination this summer, we've learned of an ancient site in Colorado that few are privy to. And no, you won't ruin things if you go there. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If I ask you to name a very old site in Colorado, you might think of the cliff Dwellings, that is, at Mesa Verde. But you probably wouldn't name Eagle Rock Shelter near Delta. People made a home there 8,000 years before the pyramids were built in Egypt. Carbon dating shows Eagle Rock is the oldest known human habitation in the state And a basket found there has the distinction of being the second oldest in the nation. I'm joined now by archaeologist with the Bureau of Land Management, Glade Haddon, and Bob Silbernagel, president of the Colorado Canyons Association. They're with us from CPR's Grand Junction studio. And gentlemen, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Well, will you describe, first off, Eagle Rock Shelter for us, Glade?
4: Well, Eagle Rock Shelter is a very nice big rock shelter. It's on the first terrace above the Gunnison River, just at the northern end of the Gunnison Gorge National Conservation Area. It's a fairly large rock shelter, Um, a lot of rock art on the walls. It's a really beautiful location, too.
0: And the public can get there to see it?
4: Oh, yeah. We've, we've had a lot of visitors come in, mostly from the river. A lot of rafting trips come through and they stop and, and people come up and look. But there is now a good trail all the way down from the top of the bluff to the shelter. And we've actually created a new hiking trail to, to go back around and make it kind of a fun trip. And what will I experience and, and to put it, put into context what I'll, I'll see there? you will see a big hole in the ground. <laughs> we've been digging on this thing for about the past 10 years now and we have removed uh, thousands of cubic meters of dirt it feels like uh with a toothbrush and a uh, dustpan. So yeah, but we have created a fairly large hole there and it's uh kind of impressive to stand there on the uh, lip of that thing and look down to see if we've left a few old hearths in place and it's kind of interesting to look at the the deposits in the walls. Bob, you've written about the history of this site. Give us a sense of what was happening
0: in the rest of the world when people first moved into this rock shelter. So I think Jesus wouldn't be born for another 11,000 years. This is about the time the Ice Age is ending. What else was happening?
3: Well, not a whole lot other than people living in small, very small family clans like this. There wasn't any uh, um, real agriculture occurring. There wasn't any um, major building of civilizations. All that would come thousands of years later. Dogs had been domesticated in Asia, but there weren't many other animals domesticated yet. So it was pretty primitive throughout the globe at
4: that time. Hmm.
0: This is one of the 20th oldest sites ever documented in the nation. Is that right?
4: I couldn't give you an exact number on that unless I did some solid research on it. But, yeah, it's somewhere in that neighborhood.
0: Okay. And how do you go about documenting the age of something like this? It doesn't seem
4: like an easy thing. Oh, tremendous numbers of radiocarbon dates out of it. Uh, When we hit that lowest level, the first thing we found was a hearth, and we found some annual grasses and seeds and so forth in there, and we sent them off for radiocarbon dating and so far pretty much every date we've sent or every charcoal sample we've sent off for analysis has come back within a very tight margin of that usually on annual plants and grasses but 12,980 years is our average date on it bob it's remarkable to, remarkable to me as a layman that, that
0: that stuff survives all that time um, can you tell me about what it has been like over the years seeing this kind of treasure trove of history coming to the surface well, I think it's
3: uh, it has been remarkable, and th- that shelter itself, because of the way it is sheltered, um, is unique in in the way it preserved not just the thirteen thousand year old uh, hearth and other materials related to it, but different strata from different areas, and there aren't many places around the around the world that uh, have preserved so much from different eras of human habitation.
4: If I could interject right there, the preservation in in that shelter has been phenomenal. Uh, For preservation to occur, you either have to keep things dry or keep things wet because it's the wet and dry, wet and dry that causes things to degrade. But here it's been dry all along. And it's not just a a 13,000-year-old level. It's a a 12,000 and a 10,000, and a 9,000, and 8,000, a 6,000, a 4,000, all the way through. We have a complete sequence of human occupation through the entire Holocene in this rock shelter.
0: And what about this basket? Tell me about the discovery of this basket, what it was made out of, what it couldn't tell us.
4: Oh, I, I, the basket itself is a beautiful little basket, and uh, we didn't expect to get that kind of a date off of it, but we certainly did. Um, It's not quite 7,000 years old, making it the second oldest basket in in the western U.S., in the United States, as far as I know. And it's just so beautifully made. It's it's a small thing, a little bit bigger than the palm of your hand. And one of the most interesting things about it was that... uh, we took this basket down to the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and had them look at it. And some of their, their modern-day basketry people are looking at that and saying, yep, it's uh, the same construction Utes have been using all along. So it uh, kind of demonstrates a cultural continuity for that long in this place. Oh, that's
0: remarkable. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and we're talking about Eagle Rock Shelter. This is near Delta, Colorado on the west slope and in recent uh, years real discoveries have been made there. It's a place you can go and and not jeopardize the history. That's key here, right, Bob? We're not we're not interested in sending folks to to sort of trample.
3: Yeah, that that is true. Glade and his crew and uh People from the uh, University in Wyoming have already substantially excavated, well, completely excavated all of the um, artifacts there. And and, uh, so if you go there, I mean, there are some barriers that they'd like you to stay behind, but you can see it and you're not going to be trampling on critical pieces of archaeology.
4: We would prefer the people visit, uh, not walk around the edges of the open excavations. But if you stay back a little bit, you can see the whole thing. And we've left it open so people can look at it. How was Eagle Rock first discovered? Oh, long story. Back in 1988, a, a concerned local citizen, uh, as a matter of fact, that's where we get most of our archaeological <laughs> information from. But somebody came to the BLM office and said, well, I found this rock shelter it has been looted. And so the archaeologist at the time uh, took some people, some professionals, and they went down there and looked at it and said, yeah, it's been looted. We need to do something. Uh, it was kind of a write-off because it had been destroyed, and they just kind of left it on the list. And so I came along in uh, 2006, and I was given the list, which is every BLM office in the country has a list of things that need to be taken care of. And this was on the top of my list. Hmm. So, uh I got uh, Dr. Dudley Gardner from Western Wyoming College. I called him in and said, let's look at this as a potential field school site. And we did, and the rest fell in the line. What can we say about the lifestyle of
0: the earliest inhabitants of Eagle Rock? So what did they eat? Um, You know, what did a day look like?
4: Well, this is one of the things that is most important about this site because our, our uh, paradigm, our view of, of hunter-gatherers in the end of the Pleistocene is all uh, the Clovis, this this big game hunting group. They, they specialize in hunting megafauna, mammoth and, and rhinoceros and extinct mammals of all sorts. And here we've got this site. We have no megafauna. We have no uh, large-scale hunting of any sort. As a matter of fact, what we've got is rabbit bones and grouse bones and lots of seeds. In in short, we get exactly what we would expect to find in a hunter-gatherer group anywhere in the world at that time. And that's what makes it really interesting is that we're kind of blowing the old paradigm out of the water by finding, no, people live pretty much like people have always lived. And this was the same thing there as it was everywhere else. Ah, So a more
0: nuanced sense of the history. I guess what I find remarkable, Bob, is that this site wasn't looted because so many sites in the West have been, you know. Well, that's
3: not Completely true. It was looted, and that's, uh, as Glade was saying, that's one of the things that got them looking into it. And uh, I, I guess I mean well, em- emptied
0: out entirely.
4: It, it oh. was not emptied out. Looters went into the center of this uh, rock shelter and pretty much took out the top three or four feet of deposits right in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, fortunately for us, they got down to a big layer of rocks that washed in about three, 4,000 years ago and gave up. Said, nah, it's too much work. And so they left the rest of it.
0: Lucky for you guys. So, do you oh, think? Oh,
4: lucky isn't the word.
0: Lucky is not the word. That's that, that's right. There's probably a lot of work that goes into this. Is, is there <laughs> is there some sense that there are other sites like these that are simply undiscovered?
4: I believe it. I can't prove it, but yeah. Well we learn more and more all the time and we just keep looking in places we haven't looked before. And that's why we're finding stuff because we're starting to look in places we didn't expect to find it. Therefore we're finding stuff we didn't expect to find.
0: Hmm. Say more about that. What would be a place you wouldn't expect to look that you're finding?
4: Part of it is the depth. We're we're looking at places. uh, Most of the archeological sites we excavate have a given depth to them. Once you hit bedrock, you're done, of course, and, And so they weren't lived in for continuously or for long periods of time. Here we have a place where we had up to 20 meters of depth in just natural deposits right on the banks of the old river here. So we knew we could go deep. And that's part of what we really have to get our heads around is go deep. Yeah, We can't do the shallow excavations and expect to find stuff. We have to keep digging.
0: Well, Bob, why don't you leave us with what goes through your mind when you're at Eagle Rock? What is it like for you to be there?
3: I guess it's – I've always had this intrigue about who was here before us and um, reading about different things from Kennewick Man, Mesa Verde, the people crossing the Bering Strait. So standing there at the edge of Eagle Rock Shelter, you can look into the pit, but you can also turn and look over the Gunnison Valley into the river and see something like they saw, although the climate has probably changed. But you get this sense that, you know – they were looking for what people look like today look for today you know access to water a good good place shelter a good place to live and it's uh, it's pretty amazing to to try and get a sense of what they may have been thinking in choosing a place like that to live
0: Bob Silbernagel is president of the Colorado Canyons Conservation Association. You also heard from Glade Haddon, archaeologist with the Bureau of Land Management. They joined us from the CPR studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. And the program continues after a break. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Violinist Edward Dusenberry was 24, fresh out of Juilliard, when he was asked to be a member of the Takac Quartet, based at CU Boulder. He joined three experienced Hungarian musicians. One of them told him, "'This is not a job. It's your family. Your life.'" In his new book, Dusenberry gives us a backstage pass to one of the world's most celebrated quartets, the heated discussions they have at rehearsals, the relentless travel schedule, and accolades from fans and critics. Along the way, Beethoven's 16-string quartets have been musical touchstones. berry's book, part memoir, part history, is called Beethoven for a Later Age, Living with the String Quartets. And Ed, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks. We've been hearing a 2002 recording by the Takach of Beethoven's Opus 59, Number 3, which just happens to be the piece you played when you auditioned for the quartet back in 1993. Tell us about that experience and how you came to join the group.
5: Well, it was a very heady experience, and I remember... Clearly, I talk about in the book being met at the airport by the violist, Gabor Olmey. And the thing that caught me by surprise was the social aspect of it. I mean, I'd been sitting in a practice room practicing all my music. And then I suddenly realized I'm going to get asked all sorts of challenging, tricky questions. Um, When you're not sitting in a room by yourself, in other words. Exactly. And um, uh, the sort of questions that actually maybe... In a university job, one's not allowed to ask, but in a string quartet, you really need to ask, like, how are you going to balance your personal life with uh, playing in a string quartet when you're on the road all the time and uh, you spend more time with your colleagues than you do with your family? So I wasn't very well prepared for that part of the audition. Um, On the other hand, the three Hungarians were very friendly, very open, very good senses of humor. What I liked right away in the first dinner we had was they didn't always agree with each other about anything. And unlike many audition experiences that I had, I really felt they wanted me to play well. You know, when you're doing a an orchestral audition or something, um, maybe it's easier for the judges if you play badly because they can just eliminate you. But you but, felt that they were rooting for you. Yeah, oh, exactly. That,
0: what a lovely feeling in an audition. Where does the name Tokach come from?
5: So Tokach Quartet is named after their wonderful founding first violinist, Gabor Tokach Nodge, who was uh, with the quartet in Boulder, um, moved out in 86 to the university there, uh, and in fact was here very recently uh, conducting the Irish Chamber Orchestra in Boulder. So we had a very nice reunion. He's now a successful conductor.
0: When you joined the quartet, you not only had to prove yourself to your three colleagues, but to live up to the expectations of audience members, which I don't know, maybe that's a taller order. I'm not sure which is, which is taller. How did you assert your own identity?
5: That's the thing that's Hardest and most interesting about joining a quartet or any small organization that has where,
0: a real following.
5: Yeah, I mean, you have to. So, I was the first non-Hungarian, so I had to um, get over certain national stereotypes. Uh, sense, oh, who's, who's this re- reserved Englishman who's joined up? I mean, he can't possibly be passionate enough to play with Hungarians who are so extrovert. So, there was a certain amount of uh, <laughs> dealing with that kind of perception, and of course. It it takes time because you want to blend with the colleagues. And uh, they've been doing this for 18 years. So I was wanting to be careful, not to be arrogant. And then on the other hand, they wanted a strong musical personality and a strong presence on stage. So you're always balancing how to fit with the group and how to be an individual. And in a way, that's a kind of a nice um, symbol of how many of us grapple with themes in our, in our lives, you know with uh, close friendships, close relationships, how much can we keep our individuality and how much can we be part of a team right. so it's, I had to learn very quickly <laughs>
0: it's four individuals, and then it 's the unit, the cohesion of the four exactly uh, I guess to my early wondering, do you feel more stress at the audience 's reaction or at at the co- your colleague 's reaction?
5: I think in the first year, I did get upset when we had a few bad reviews. um, Mm. And I was very reassured by the others in the group who were very calm and very stable. And so their reactions were more important to me in the end uh, and very helpful. If they also had not been very happy, then that would have been a problem.
0: (laughs) So in your interview, your audition for the Takic Quartet how you would balance your personal and professional lives was front and center. And you write about the rigors of traveling around the world to perform, the flights, the long car rides, sometimes making it to the concert hall with minutes to spare. So no chance really even to catch your breath. Is there a, a memory in, in that vein that stands out?
5: Well, yes, there's an extreme example that I mentioned in the book of, yeah. uh, of waking up I'd slept through my alarm and it was pitch dark outside I rushed into my tuxedo uh, and knew I was going to be late for the stage rehearsal but it was very very quiet outside and um, I suddenly realized actually it was the middle of the night it was five in the morning instead of five in the evening and I was standing wide awake in my hotel room (laughs) in my elegant tuxedo so that was um That was a sign of someone (laughs) rather disoriented. Um, And, you know, I grew up with these rather civilized family holidays um, where we didn't travel very far and picnics were provided and it was all taken care of. The Hungarian way of traveling when I first joined was a little more intense.
0: So did you just have to um,
5: surrender to the fact that you wouldn't see your family as much? When I first joined, it was easy because I, I... I mean, I, I missed my parents who were in England, but I didn't have a wife and child. And so at first it was easy. And then, of course, when I did get married, my wife knew what she was getting into. Uh-huh. Um, and my son's been very funny about that. At some point we talked about, um, you know, what would happen if I was around more instead of traveling. And he said, Dad, that would be a big adjustment for everyone. <laughs> he didn't necessarily uh, welcome it <laughs> well I think it's a sort of th- everyone's kind of used to the time that yeah. I'm away and, the, and the, th- the thing is with a performing musician when you're home not playing concerts you can be a bit of a pain to be around <laughs>
0: guest is violinist Edward Dusenberry of the Boulder Bass Takach Quartet. His new book is called Beethoven for a Later Age, Living with the String Quartets. More after a break, including why Dusenberry thinks Beethoven's music remains relevant in the 21st century. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get back to my conversation with Edward Dusenberry. He's first violinist with the celebrated Taketsch Quartet based in Boulder. And his new book is called Beethoven for a Later Age, Living with the String Quartets. One thing that audience members rarely see is the rehearsal process, something you come back to again and again in this book. How do four opinionated musicians, as you say, who often disagree, come to agreements on how to perform a piece of music? Paint a picture of those discussions for us?
5: Well, we first start off playing a piece through, uh, trying to get through movement. And we all have maybe different opinions right off the bat about the character of a piece of music. Should it be restless or should it be peaceful? These kind of just basic issues. And when you come back to a piece after a long time away, your opinions have changed. So you might have two hmm. or three different opinions in the room.
0: But, but this is a bit like an actor finding motivation that is to say what is what is the mood what is motivating us in this piece
5: that's exactly right that's where we're always coming back to is the character of the music what we're trying to convey and then and then you're just talking about the means to do that
0: and how marvelous that it changes
5: yeah that's the one of the things that's great about the quartet so we're always debating and we're lucky that we play like actors we play the pieces uh, more than once so we can agree yeah okay I'll 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 do it your way for a couple of concerts and then, <laughs> and then, and then we'll see how it goes. You know, we'll, we'll have a recording and we might tweak, but we're always, we're always tweaking details. So there's the art of compromise. It is compromise and compromise maybe sometimes gets a bad reputation for being somehow weak, but it's, it's quite the opposite in the string quartet because you, you're trying to f- uh, fuse something together for opinions and in the end, you have to convey consensus on the stage and that's that's so much more powerful. There is one rehearsal...
0: You write about in the book that really stands out. It's 1994. You've been with the quartet for a little more than a year. You're rehearsing the slow movement of Beethoven's Opus 59, number two. playing this incredibly serene music and yet you've just learned that violist Gabor Ormai has been diagnosed with cancer and you write, Beethoven's music seemed irrelevant that day. From now on, I would associate this music with the terror in Gabor's eyes.
5: Do you still? That was a, of course a tremendously difficult time and I think it was one of my first experiences uh, of when you encounter a piece of art and it and it does something different from what you'd like um I didn't I wasn't in the mood for serene music Mm. but somehow the the perspective now 15-20 years later is it's it's a way to keep his memory alive and that was a very traumatic period but when I go back to the piece it also reminds me of all the great things about him as well so the thing is with a great piece of music that when you live with it for a long enough time, it it becomes like a lifelong companion, and it's sort of with you during the ups and downs, and there's a kind of a a solace in that. Hmm.
0: But are there pangs of pain, pangs of the memory?
5: He went very fast,
0: didn't he? I think he died like seven months later. Uh,
5: That's right. It was very quick um, from the diagnosis. And, and of course, there is a pain, but uh, I think that Beethoven, when he was writing those pieces, was dealing with his own pain, his own... Traumas and of, of having gone suddenly very deaf and having felt quite despairing and suicidal. And so his music comes out of that and, and provides a kind of a, a comfort and a strength as well. So to tie the narratives
0: together, that is Beethoven's and your own with Gabor's. touched on Beethoven, and I should mention that the Takic has recorded all 16 of his string quartets. Your book is as much about Beethoven as it is about Takic. Um, Explain the title, Beethoven for a Later Age. I I gather it's the one we're in now, I'm not sure.
5: Well, uh, when Beethoven wrote these radical mid-quartets, the Opus 59s, uh, there was a rather arrogant violinist, if you can imagine such a phenomenon, (laughs) who, uh, (laughs) who said who said to Beethoven, uh, they're not music. And to which Beethoven replied, they are not for you, they are for a later age. Mm. And actually, quite quite quickly, these pieces that um, seemed uh, too much emotion in them, I think people found them very disturbing, the amount of contrast and kind of range of emotion. And actually, within 10 or 15 years... Even uh, players and audiences were responding well to them. And it's it's a nice story in terms of our own very knee-jerk reactions to what we experience culturally and elsewhere nowadays. You know, quick like on a Facebook page or don't like or change the website. That actually with, with great works of art, you, you do need to engage with them over a longer period of time.
0: Of course, that makes Beethoven seem even more... Uh, superhuman, right? Not only was he a genius, but he was somehow a genius that was before his time and w- could sense something coming.
5: That's exactly right. I mean, he was reflecting that very turbulent period of the Napoleonic Wars and a uh, great sense of instability, uh, as well as reflecting the, the emotional ups and downs of his own life. and And that's perhaps why his music is still so relevant to us is that he expresses that kind of whole spectrum of humanity so well. I think what um,
0: struck me about the book is I I knew Beethoven was exacting. I don't think I knew how exacting. And a sense that not everyone, he thought, could play his pieces. And not everyone could even listen to them
5: and really grasp them. He was uncompromising in the sense of uh, writing music that came out of his own vision. And he wasn't kind of Uh, trying to please the lowest denominator, he could do that. He wrote some very popular incidental music. But the string quartets are part of his most radical compositional project of kind of trying new phrasing, trying new characters, new contrasts, new textures in the music, really redesigning the string quartet so that by the end of his life, um, the quartet had become very much about four equal musicians. So in that sense, it sort of reflected some of the social upheaval. Ah, the egalitarian nature that he was seeking. Yes.
0: Do you ever feel like you're insufficient In, in
5: if he were alive today in Beethoven's eyes? That's a great question. I always feel insufficient. <laughs> <laughs> and... And I think that maybe part of that's what the book is about, that you, you have to take that kind of feeling of insufficiency or anxiety that you're not quite up to it and, and use that as a, as a challenge to motivate yourself. And, and that's, in a way, why the music is always for a later age. You know, you can never just sit still and say, well, it's just for today. You've now been with Taket for 23 years. The quartet has been around much longer,
0: of course, since 75. You still tour, record, teach... And yet, nothing lasts forever, except maybe Beethoven. What lies ahead for Takic?
5: Well, we, we're we in a very good space at the moment, enjoying concerts and our audiences. One of the big things for us is is teaching at the University of Colorado. And I uh, mention in the book our graduate quartet program. And I think there's a sense of being part of this tradition that I in the book I talk about the first players who played this music and the difficulties they had and and how and also the rewards and how 200 years later we're doing that and we're also trying to pass that on to the next generation. So I think as we get older of course we focus more and more on the the importance of the the teaching and kind of trying to encourage the younger groups to have this inquiring curiosity about this music.
0: So in some ways you're working yourself out of a job. <laughs>
5: Well, certainly working with younger groups keeps one on one's toes. And I had a very funny experience with another young group uh, that heard us play a piece and then they played it in a master class, public class, a couple of weeks later. And in one place, the first violinist did a very strange uh, choice with his bowing arm, something that I hadn't done at all. And I said, why are you doing that? And he said, well, I... I heard the way you did it the other night and thought I'd try something different. <laughs> so. And
0: you praised him for that?
5: Well, I did, because we don't want to be creating clones. And there, are, the thing is, especially with great music, just like with Shakespeare plays, there's so many, many different ways to, to play. That's that's the excitement of them.
0: Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. Violinist Ed Dusenberry of Boulder Bass Talkich Quartet. His new book is called Beethoven for a Later Age. The quartet will perform tomorrow night at the Aspen Music Festival. Finally today, The Pursuit of Happiness is a summertime poem from our
6: resident poet, David Rothman. He wrote it for us a few years back. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. But as you cruise down Main Street in a Jeep covered with confetti, honking loudly, or tell the kids again, for God's sake, please, water balloons, do not belong inside. As meanwhile, on the grill, the burgers hiss. Or maybe as you drive or hike in the mountains, so cool and verdant in this big snow year. Or as you paddle rivers, hang with friends, play softball, hoist a beer, or read a book, watch a good movie, maybe have a talk, walk a dog, hook trout, sing play some catch, and even if alone in your thoughts, lonely, you contemplate how you might change your life. As you do all that, as all of us pursue whatever we're pursuing now, consider this, that happiness is the truth, a concept at the core of all our freedom, and that today is one part testimony to its political birth pangs. Before that strange July day many decades back, had any people ever anywhere, thought to declare that happiness could be something we have a fundamental right to seek, as true as life and liberty? And yet that's what the fading parchment says. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hold on. We hear the words so frequently, we often don't really hear them, but that's what they say. The pursuit of happiness is bedrock. Yes, with good cause. For what could make people less equal than what has occurred repeatedly throughout history? That some enjoyed more rights to pursue happiness than others. That some, because of others' accidents of birth, their bad luck, and their harder choices, wrote law saying those others had less right to seek out happiness. Their happiness came second to the ruler's happiness. And we were not immune. We too have held some people to be more equal than others, saying for far too long that some could not step to the counter for an ice cream cone or could not vote or work or join or marry. Liberty depends on such hard facts. Remember, people only say things appear self-evident when they are not. And yet we've inherited these words about our right to chase our happiness, and we have used them well and held that truth, stumbling towards our more perfect union, a stumbling we must keep considering how to do. In all its imperfections, part of its promise, we should celebrate that great pursuit and recommit ourselves to it, our pursuit of happiness, and everyone else's pursuit of theirs, how to achieve it, how to make it work. Try this, whoever you may be, in your relentless solitude. Take just one easy minute and observe the men, women, and children near you now. Just observe them and consider them doing their best pursuing happiness. Then consider how, with them, you might celebrate the texture of that freedom and turn and celebrate it in yourself, in all your dreams and failures, lies and courage, successes, tragedies, and compromises. Why not? Today's the day. Make every minute of it count, remembering that this is part of what it means to be free. David Rothman is Colorado
0: Matters resident poet. He also leads the graduate program in creative writing at Western State Colorado University. You can read The Pursuit of Happiness at cprnews.org. That's the program for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for being with us.